The following podcast contains strong language. It's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the book. Hello, and welcome to It's in the Book, a queer Bible podcast. I am the almost Reverend Jay Sylvan. I am a Unitarian Universalist minister. My pronouns are they, them, there, and I know the Bible pretty well. I'm David Waters, Minister for Education at King's Chapel. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I know the Bible pretty well as well. I'm Sue Buzzard, she, her, hers. I am not a religious professional in any way, shape, or form, but I am married to Jay, and I hear about all of these tales from the bible and i am regaled and i'm like these are outrageous what is happening it's in the book so the way this show usually works is we tell a story from the bible uh david and i talk about it and sue reacts to it because usually she has never heard these stories before unless there has been a popular musical <laughs> written about them, mm-hmm. in which case she knows them inside and out. That's the truth. But this is a special event for multiple reasons. One, Sue and my one-year-old son is directly in front of us. So if you hear baby talk in the background, it is because he is also trying to talk mm. in the episode. I mm. think the mic is not picking it up but I can't be sure while I'm recording it. So if you are hearing something that sounds like a one-year-old talking, that's exactly what what, it is. That is what is happening. Moved Um, by the spirit. Moved by the spirit. Exactly. The language of the angels. So that is one reason why this is an important episode. Two, this is our season finale, and we've finally finished the book of Genesis. Woo! Woo! And because of that, I am very excited to say that we have a very special guest Joy Layden is here with us to discuss the book of Genesis as a whole. And I have a wonderful bio that Joy has sent me. Joy Layden has long worked at the tangled intersection of literature, Judaism, and transgender identity. She is the author of Lambda Literary and Triangle Award finalist, The Soul of the Stranger, Reading God and Torah from a Transgender Perspective a memoir of gender transition, National Jewish Book Award finalist, Through the Door of Life, and 10 books of poetry, including her new collection, Shakina Speaks, National Jewish Book Award winner, The Book of Anna, The Future is Trying to Tell Us Something, New and Selected Poems, and Lambda Literary Award finalist, Transmigration and Impersonation. A new book, Family, is forthcoming from Persia Press a nationally recognized speaker on transgender issues. She has been featured on a number of NPR programs, including an On Being with Krista Tippett interview that has been rebroadcast several times. Episodes of her online conversation series containing multitudes are available at jewishlive.org slash multitudes. Her writing is available at joyladen.wordpress.com. So excited. Yes. I have been a fan of Joy's for years at this point, and I was thrilled that you agreed to do this. So welcome. Welcome, Joy. Indeed. Welcome. Thank you. So great to be here. So let's 
get right into it. All right. So this episode is going to go a little bit different. So now we are going to recap the book of Genesis. If I had more time, I would have written a cute rhyming song to recap it. But sadly, that is not (laughs) my life currently. That is not our reality. That is not our current reality. But let's take a trip back. Remember the chapter one, the very first creation story. God creates the world in six days Mm -hmm. and then God rests on the seventh day. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Garden of Eden story. There's Adam and Eve in the garden Mm -hmm. and the snake comes and Eve eats from the tree of knowledge of good and bad Mm -hmm. and then they realize they're naked and they put on clothes Mm -hmm. and then god curses them with gender roles and other things and kicks them out of the garden and it is very sad and then Mm -hmm. they have children they have cain and abel and cain becomes jealous of abel and kills him and buries him Right? I don't remember. I don't think it says he buries him. Okay, never mind. saying yes, burial. He does bury him. Joy has has the final word. Uh, Buries him. And the blood of Abel cries out to God. And God is like, what did you do? And Cain gets banished. And his line is cursed. Sorry. I'm like trying to remember as we go along. Yes. And he gets the mark on him, the mark of Cain. And then Adam and Eve have sort of a do-over son named Seth. And <laughs> and Seth has the his line. And Cain yeah. has his line. And there's two sort of parallel lines of descendants. But then God gets mad because angels are boinking humans and that's no bueno. Oh my God. And also humans are always evil all the time. And God sends a flood to kill everything, Mm -hmm. every single thing. But Noah is cool. Noah and his fam are cool. And God's like, okay, Noah and fam, you're cool. So like heads up, this big flood's going to come and I'm counting on you to build an enormous boat and save all of, you know, everybody who is cool. Like, no pressure. Well, no, just his family. Yeah. Save your <laughs> I family. I love that you're remembering and, this. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just his own family. No, but good memory. I'm glad you remember a lot of the good details. There hasn't been a musical about this yet, which is interesting. No, but there think... was a terrible film sequel. Film sequel. Okay. Yeah. Oh, with, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's been a few. Yeah. But yeah, Noah saves his family and, and two or, or 14 of each animal and everything else dies. And then it's sort of this do over with Noah and his sons and their families. Mm-hmm. The uh, rainbow means God promises never to destroy the world by flood ever again. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Read the fine print. Absolutely. By flood. By flood. <laughs> and Wait, then. Joy? Yes, Joy. Uh, That promise only leaves God 10,000 ways of destroying the earth. So, (laughs) (laughs) sacrifice. You know, it's a covenantal relationship. (laughs) And, you know, God has promised in this one specific way (laughs) not to kill us. And I keep wanting to be like, you know, climate change, you know, raising ocean levels, remember. But so then we see Noah's sons. There is a ambiguous transgression that happens with Noah's son, Ham. The language is he sees his father naked. Some sort of very serious transgression happens there. And Ham's line becomes cursed. And we see 
the lines of his different sons and the line of Shem, his son, ends with Abraham or doesn't end with it, but it produces eventually Abraham. And Abraham is the first patriarch and his wife, Sarah, is the first matriarch. We used the word periarch at some points. And then we meet Sarah, Abraham and Hagar. They produce sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael gets screwed over because he is the son of Hagar, who is uh, the enslaved concubine. Hagar gets screwed over. Sarah and Abraham produce Isaac. It is a miracle. Sarah is very old, and both of them, it said, had been barren. But it is this miracle, and Isaac is this beloved son who then... And honey, you know this. This is a hit. What happens then? Isaac, Abraham. Oh, yeah. And like, yeah, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, like God's like, Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham says, okay. And he brings him up on a mountain and is just about to do it. And God's like, wait, 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 no, don't really kill him. But like, good job for follow. Way to follow directions. You like <laughs> Isaac doesn't have to die. Just kill this goat instead. And Abraham's like, oh. it's a ram. But yes, exactly. So Abraham passes this test. And then we get the line of Abraham, the line of Isaac. Then we get Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, also barren, and then she's not. And then we get Jacob and Esau, two twins, and we get a sibling switcheroo. So Jacob sort of tricksters his way into getting the birthright and the blessing, even though Esau should have it because he is the older son. And then Jacob kind of runs away because he's afraid Esau is going to kill him. And he marries two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And there's a fun sibling switcheroo there where he wanted Rachel, but he gets Leah and then he gets both of them. It's a whole caper. He has 12 sons with Leah, Rachel, and the two concubines, uh, Zilpah and Bilha. I'm not going to name them all here. We also, there's the story of Dina you will remember that was only a few episodes ago and the story of Tamar also in there. And then we've got Joseph, his rise and fall and rise and fall and rise. And we end yeah. with the family coming together in Egypt and everything kind of being cool, despite yeah, when the father Jacob dies, the other sons are worried that Joseph who rules Egypt will kill them all. Right. Otherwise, they're good. Yeah. They're good. <laughs> and <laughs> besides the constant threat of, yeah. you know. Right. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what, what that was actually like, like living, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, things are fine. But at any point, you have all of the power and we did absolutely dick you over yeah. like years and years ago. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. But that's family, right? <laughs> you so know, if you're not in living some families, uh, the stakes are higher than others. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> and so then we get to the end of the book of Genesis where Joseph dies and he's like, at some point you will go back to our homelands that God promised to us. Please take my bones back. And he gets mummified and the end is the beginning. And that is where we are. And I wanted to begin our discussion about this with a quote that I love from 
a book called Wrestling with God and Men, Homosexuality in the Jewish Tradition by Rabbi Stephen Greenberg. The quote goes, the Hebrew Bible is among the world's most lasting, comprehensive, and popular master narratives. It is important to begin with the Hebrew Bible, not only because the Torah is the revelatory foundation of Judaism, but also because Western culture has been profoundly shaped by it. The Genesis creation stories in particular have constructed terra cognita, familiar territory, in which to live. Our very sense of knowledge about the world presumes a coherence and unity that emerge from Genesis. So that, to That's me... A great quote. I don't agree with it. But it's oh, a really? really quote. Tell me more. Well, one, to start at the end, I think people who were not receiving the Torah probably lived in a coherent world. And they had other stories. So I think that although we have generated coherence producing narratives out of it, I don't actually think that was an innovation. The Torah is innovative in a lot of different ways, but I am skeptical that is one of them. But the other is I don't see it as a master narrative. And I, I think maybe you don't either. It's like, what is the story? Like if you were going to, you just recounted a series of incidents, sometimes among people who are related, sometimes among people who are not related, you can retroactively say, which I think Christian tradition did. Christian tradition said, well, this has to lead up to Jesus. So let's figure out how to read the mess of different voices and viewpoints and, and stories, which often have multiple variations, as you know. Let's see if we can read it as a coherent narrative that leads up to what we see as the second beginning of humankind and the resetting of the divine human relationship. But I don't look at the Torah and see anything that could constitute a single coherent master narrative. There's like fuel for a zillion narratives and that is the way jewish tradition has dealt with it is as a you know a source of constantly multiplying interpretations and understandings to me it looks more like that definition of god where the center is everywhere and the circumference is nowhere you just open the torah and wherever your eye lands you make that the center this is what we do when we have to write sermons right Mm. Like, all right, this week, let's see, what do we got here? Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to put this part at the center. And then nobody ever says, I'm so sorry. You know, I just couldn't have come up with anything to say. <laughs> That's not going to fly. I don't think that would have been a hit this morning. You know? <laughs> so sorry. I thought about this all week. And you know what? I just, I got nothing for you. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. Let's, let's Cue the hymn. <laughs> I think what you say is is really, I like what you say, Joy. I think what maybe what Greenberg is struggling with is our sort of desire for a master narrative, right? And so he's like, well, we want it so bad. Maybe it is here after all, right? But I was struck by was this terra cognita, right? I like that phrase, right? And I thought, yes and no, right? Yes, 
it is familiar territory, right? By virtue of us revisiting it constantly, right? But if the experience of creating this podcast has shown me anything, right? It's that stories that you thought you were familiar with, right? The ground and the territory that you thought were familiar, actually upon revisiting it, become unfamiliar, right? And that is really more than a grand master narrative, right? I think that's what keeps us coming back, right? That's what makes this a sacred text, is that when you return to territory that you thought was familiar, you find that somehow it shifted under your feet, right? And that can be by virtue of you having changed since the last time you visited this place. It reminds me of like going back to my, you know, sort of childhood house when I had grown up and realizing that the streets were very much smaller than I thought they were. (laughs) (laughs) Like everything has literally shrunk, right? And so our sort of not only physical, but emotional and spiritual growth sometimes changes the landscape of what we thought was familiar. And I think that part of what makes this a sacred text is that it is perhaps inherently inexhaustible, right? So I think it's Virginia Woolf's father, uh, perhaps uncle, who says that the Bible is not infallible, but it is inexhaustible, right? That is that you can come back and keep digging and digging and digging and never run out of, you know, sort of earth to cover. Joy, what you were saying made me think, what do we, when we say master narrative or when he says master narrative, Rabbi Greenberg, I don't know what he intended in that quote. And it's been a while since I grabbed this quote out of that book. And I don't remember where he was going with it, to be honest, at this moment. But, you know, what really surprised me when I got into the Hebrew Bible when I was in seminary was I had the idea coming from this sort of Christmas Easter Catholic upbringing where I didn't really know the Bible at all. I think I had the idea that everything was very morally simple and it was a linear narrative in a way that I would understand as a modern person, you know, and all this stuff. And that is not what I got when I, (laughs) when I read it. But, you know, for me as a queer person, my favorite thing about it is that is the both andness of it. Like the fact that it will take two versions of the same story, put them next to each other and just say, sit with it, you know, sit with the fact that there are two versions of this story or three or whatever, or that this contradicts this directly, but both are holy or both are are encapsulated in this holy text. And I mean, I find that to be the queerest part of the book personally. And when I say what struck me about this quote and the reason I wanted to bring it is, you know, not to say that the Torah was innovative in constructing sort of a a terra, I don't remember the Latin, terra cognita. But I do find that the stories of Genesis are foundational in quote unquote Western culture, right? And the Bible, the Hebrew Bible assumes like the rest of the Hebrew Bible from my reading of it, assumes that you know the stories of Genesis inside and out. Like those sort of themes keep coming back. And if you disagree, 
you know, let me know. And I find that people who think of themselves as secular still carry a lot of these narratives in them. I mean, I, I remember reading this book called Dawn of Everything that I think I mentioned in a Corrections and Expansions episode, but it talks about new science coming out about, um, you know, very, very prehistoric humans and how modern Western science, the Western popular narrative of early humans sort of reflexively goes back to the Garden of Eden myth over and over, even if like the evidence kind of doesn't necessarily align with that, like sort of this idea that, you know, there was this time of innocence and then the fall. And and I mean, and this is a very Christian perspective of the Garden of Eden myth as well. Right. But that's why I brought this quote to begin it. But I, I'm going to stop talking now. Somebody else can talk. <laughs> well, I think that some of the stories like the Garden of Eden have become very much part of, they become, master narratives is a weird way to put it. It's more like they're narrative paradigms for thinking about, like we think of ourselves as being in an afterwork and we don't think of ourselves as being at the beginning, except of course, when we do, such as when the Puritans got to this country and they were like, well, if you don't see the people who aren't white, it's really like the Garden of Eden where the first people on earth. Yeah, You know, so there are certain parts of the Torah. There are other parts like the rape of Dina that I think had almost no impact on the way anybody thinks about anything. Yeah. Does it have to do with Dina's gender? Yeah, you know, maybe. So the other thing is there are some books of the Torah where I would say what like the prophets, the Psalms, where there are key events in the five books of Moses absolutely are presumed. It's like there's a narrative vocabulary. Again, not the rape of Dina. There's a lot of stuff that sort of drops out, but there are a lot of references backward. But there are other books. This is a, a huge anthology, like the book of yeah. Esther, I would say no. Kohelet, no, no. I mean, it's even attributed to a non-Jewish person by a rabbinic tradition. Mm -hmm. So even within what we think of as the Hebrew Bible, I don't, think it's a master narrative. I think there are a couple of, for Jews, there are a couple of things that became these narrative archetypes or way lenses through which just to see, make things terra cognita. So the creation is absolutely one of them, more the creation than the, what you call the fall. That has much, you know, it's much mm -hmm. more important in Jewish tradition that God created everything. And for Jews, the way we remember creation, we remember it every week with the Sabbath. Mm. We don't go to chapter two, mm. right? And we're remembering creation. It's not about us. It's about God and being able to pause at this moment of Shabbat. What is the one thing that human beings can do just like God? Well, we can rest. Mm. We cannot do like God. So this is a place mm. where we meet God and we remember that. that. Yeah, and then we can, you know, we can look around and what we're supposed to see is, yeah, everywhere I look, I'm seeing something God created. Mm. And now I'm giving myself the leisure to notice that. And the stuff about humanity is like a sort of a pragmatic, like, yeah, you know, human beings. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> that is so wonderful. <laughs> 
That's so. The other one I would just say is the more parochial one, and it is like like a, a second. These are dueling narratives in the Hebrew year. There's Rosh Hashanah and there's Pesach. So the narrative of the going out of Egypt has, and also it becomes a dominant narrative lens through which to look at things, and you you can't forget that without getting drummed out of the club. Also. No spoilers because we haven't gotten to Exodus yet. So, <laughs> so no, I was going to say it's interesting, you know, that you say that for Jewish people, you know, it's the, the creation story. The first chapter is sort of the creation narrative that takes hold, because I would I would say, I mean, and David, you let me know because you are vastly more Christian than I am. But, you know, I would say that in Christianity, it is really Garden of Eden, like all is the the all go garden to all the time. Well, that would be the first sort of creation story that I think of. But would you, you're looking like you don't I agree? I think it's well. This is where you have to say right. There's lots of different Christianity. Yeah, that's you know? true. And so it really depends on which variety you're practicing. Yeah. So sure, in some traditions, you're gonna have. Of that focus on Eden, right? And that then usually concomitant desire to get back to Eden, right? Yeah. Which we must say, right, is constructed differently depending on your positionality, right? So we have a kind of touchstone for that in the Hebrew Bible. But then, of course, by the time we get at it, right, from our present scenario, Eden looks a lot of different ways, right? And then I think you have, you do have folks who are more focused on the creation story uh, as given to, that's extra eaten, right? That's like, okay, actually, let's talk about this creation. Let's talk about a kind of uh, sacramental imagination that imagines that God not only created this creation, but is sort of imminent in this creation, right? And Andrew Greeley's phrase that I love, right? That God is lurking around the corner, right? Waiting for us, waiting on us in creation, right? Mm -hmm. And so that I think is, certainly that's the imagination that I grew up with, right? That, you know, in the stuff of creation, right? We can find the divine if we only have eyes to see mm -hmm. and ears to hear. Awesome. So one of the... uh other things I wanted to mention is how much this turns into a family story. I just add a little footnote there oh, before sure. because it's occurring to me that in the juxtaposition of those two creation narratives, which contradict one another and only overlap a little bit, but they contradict where they overlap in terms of chronology, you see one of what I think is one of the innovations of the Hebrew Bible as and organized offering, organizing narratives. Because on the one hand, the Hebrew Bible wants to tell stories in ways that make God visible, the lurking of God, but the more than lurking, right? I mean, God's lurking, but every now and then God pops up and does more than lurks and, you know, you're washing God's feet because he's visiting you after your circumcision, whatever. There's a lot of divine human interactions, but the narrative perspective is we're on God's side. We see this from God's side. You know, Abraham, God visits Abraham. Abraham looks up and sees three men. And we, the reader, say, yeah, we know what's really going on. Even Abraham doesn't know what's really going on. So the first chapter sets up a story where 
you're telling a story in a way that makes God visible. So visible that human beings are barely visible at all. They're not visible as individuals, right? When God blesses mm. human beings at the end, are there so, is there one hermaphrodite? Or there, is there a whole species here? Are there two? We have no mm-hmm. way of knowing because the, from the divine point of view, that it's too different from the human perspective. So God's at the center of the universe and we really, human beings are not. Then in chapter two, human beings get put at the center Mm. of the universe and God gets harder to see. Mm. God interacts a lot with Adam, but then it's like, wait, is that God moving in the garden? Mm. Right. It starts to become more of a human, a story about human interactions with God and less a story that where God is at the center. And, you know, like when you take a photograph of a beautiful mountain, and then someone you know stands in front of it. It's not a photograph mm. of the mountain anymore, mm-hmm. right? So for human beings, as soon as a story has human characters, we pay attention to human characters. Mm. Very hard for us not to. And the Hebrew Bible is constructed in ways to try to push against that so that we can have both human beings and an awareness of God in the story at the same time. And it produces some very weird narrative characteristics, but it's very... It's very both and. Absolutely. I almost see it as it's almost like multi-genre, right? Like it's almost like, <laughs> and maybe I'm just looking at this from like a total postmodern lens or whatever, but I mean, just the genre of Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 and 3 are so different that the intentional putting of them together in that order, as you say, kind of does this to the listener or the reader. It creates this experience of the divine that I think is really, I think of it as a remarkable feat of editing. (laughs) Mm. Uh, Can I just say, I'm very glad, Joy, I'm very, very glad you're joining us. I love the perspective that you're bringing in. And I also am glad to hear many more ways that we can try to interact with God and the divine in our life. That's like one of the things I love about the show in this podcast. You know, I'm like, I'm not a student of theology or divinity, but I love that I found ways to feel like I'm connected to God and be okay with it in ways that are so different that I grew up hearing. So it's great. Yay. Finally, you've got somebody else besides me and David to, to, to like to tell you our opinions. Yeah. You know, and I, it's challenging, right? Because I do feel like some. I don't always do a good job of saying when I think I am sort of stretching the text, you know, because there are times when I think, okay, I'm going to read this sort of and imagine that I'm reading this as as historically intended or whatever, which is just made up because there's no way I can know that. But then there's other times where I'm like, no, I'm I'm really like putting my own modern lens on this and I'm trying to make meaning of this in my modern life. And I don't think I always do a good job of like making that distinction in the podcast or in my own reading or in my my ministry or whatever. I know in academic circles, it's really important to make those distinctions. And I don't know if I should try harder at that or whatnot. And, and the reason I say that is because I'm looking at some of my notes of other things I wanted to talk about. And, you know, like, 
I wanted to talk about like the repeated theme of like the inversion of expected power dynamics, right? Like the the younger for the older. I mean, we talked about that a lot in some of the Jacob episodes for obvious reasons. And, you know, me as, you know, a queer non-binary feminist, I'm like, oh, yeah, like invert those power dynamics. Like this is super queer because of that. And I'm like, eh, is it? I don't know. Like, what does queer even mean when you're looking at something this old when, you know, we don't know what the gender systems were? We don't know, you know, is queer just gender? I, I don't know. So what is queer is an interesting question, right? I think part of what is queer is to find yourself in a marginal, non-standard, outsider space, right? Certainly, maybe for this moment in time, right? And so part of what it is, so then the question is like, okay, what is queer? But then what is it to read and inhabit this terra cognita or incognita, right? From a queer sensibility, perhaps what it is to read with a queer sensibility is to render terra cognita, terra incognita, right? It's to say, oh, here's what you've marked out. Here's the boundaries and the territories and the grid that you've laid over this terra, right? And we're going to make it not so firm, right? We're going to we're going to take your terra firma and we're going to make it not so firm. We're going <laughs> to render that a little less recognizable, right? And we can do that by virtue of having inhabited a space that is for many not so recognizable. Right. That's what it is. The part of what it is to be queer. Right. You know, the reason why we use the word right? what it to be queer is to be less recognizable. And so that the gift of that is that we can see one narrative next to another narrative next to another narrative that's different and say, yeah, mm -hmm, that I've got some experience that makes me that doesn't completely blow my head off. Right. And I can sit in that space of awe, right? I can sit in that space of contemplation. And perhaps it's uh, just a little easier for me to make meaning from that. You know? <laughs> I, really, I really like that. I think that in Judaism as a tradition, there's less grid, or there are so many grids. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be preserved and laid on top of each other that it's it's not a queering action. That's pretty much what rabbis who talk about the Torah would call Tuesday. <laughs> you know, well, we have yes. this interpretation yes. and we have this yes. interpretation as a weird thing. And we so the tradition moved that kind of awareness mm -hmm. to the center of interpretive activity mm -hmm. to produce a normative tradition, which I think is strange. But but I also think that you know, cultures do normalize. They produce normativity. It's a natural thing. It's like, you know, an oyster producing a pearl. It's when there are irritants, you normalize things. And so when you get to any particular instantiation of Judaism, you have normative narratives that can be unsettled by recognizing where the seams and the contradictions are. And I do think that if you, if you see yourself as standing on the edge or outside, it's easier to see those things and also less scary because, you know, that's not your house built 
on the assumption that that's stable ground. So, you know, <laughs> it's more yeah. interesting geologically. You can just get, just passionately say, oh, yeah, ground shifting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, but I also think that, so this is both and thing. In addition to that, I would suggest that an experience of being marginal. And I think there are many, many experiences of being marginal. It's one of the problems with queer as a as a category, because I think being marginal is a normal human experience. I think the experience of being not normal, not at the center, shunted aside, not understood, I think that is a foundational experience. I think kids get it with their parents, like, wow, I'm screaming my head off and you are not getting it. Mm. You know, I'm clearly marginal mm. to what's going on. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like, so I think it's built into human experience. I think the more we fit dominant structures of power, the more we can ignore it. We can afford to ignore it, right? Because things tend to break our way. But I don't think we ever get away from it, which is part of the reason I think that we stigmatize others. We're like, no, no, the ones who are marginal are those people. That makes it easier for me not to deal with my own experiences of this scary thing. So in some ways, I think it's just a part of being human to have this marginality. But there are people who really can't get away from it as part of their dominant experience. It's built in structurally to their experience. When you bring that perspective to the Bible, you notice that there are there's a lot of issues about marginality. And it doesn't line up on a moral grid. Mm-hmm. That's something that is queer about the Torah compared to us, like overturning hierarchies. How cool is that? That's clearly good, except that it produces injustice, mm-hmm. heartbreaking injustice every time, starting with Cain, who becomes homicidally enraged yep. because he has the idea of sacrificing, but his sacrifice is spurned and his kid brother's sacrifice is favored. It's like, mm. and God's like, yeah, you're going to have to work that out in therapy. <laughs> like, no opportunity for you. He's yeah. like, I'll give you some therapy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, some um, banishment therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he kills his brother and that works it out. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, same thing with Jacob, who I think is reprehensible character in many ways. Mm-hmm. Esau doesn't do anything wrong. He's just trying yeah. to be the kid his parents want. And so, but you do notice that there is this marginal character hanging around all the time. So some of the others move in and out of marginality. Mm-hmm. They're nomads, right? That's what they do. They move mm-hmm. in and out of marginality. But God is always queer. God is always marginal, always incomprehensible, mm-hmm. always lurking around the edges. And I think that that queer sensibility, which is so often opposed to a religious sensibility, so often opposed to a the kind of life where you perceive God's presence, God's work. I think it's the opposite. I think that normative religious traditions make it actually harder to perceive God's lurking. They don't want to, but they tend to mm. because they direct our attention to what's at the center. And God, by definition, can't stably be at the center of our attention because God is just too much. God blows all the categories out of the water. So we've got to get used to living with that. And that, I think, queerness and marginality is good training for. Absolutely. As you said at some point, the center is everywhere. And what was it? The center is everywhere. The boundaries the is nowhere. Is nowhere, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the circumference is nowhere. That's that's beautiful. And then 
everything is at the margin and nothing is. That's right. Brilliant. Well, we're coming up on uh, when we're going to when we're going to wrap up because I we didn't stick to my outline at all, which is fantastic because this has been <laughs> this is really I, I've really loved this conversation and I, I hope you all have had a good time as well. Hun, would you like to do a little wrap up of of what you take from the book of Genesis? given all of this i mean straight up like <laughs> is is there a part of the story of the book of genesis that we need to conclude with like is there a part of the story that that we missed because that we missed yeah like i was like we heard all these different stories we heard we talked about these different stories I heard people talk about different forms and the meaning that they make from it, what we take, what it quote unquote means, what different people say it means. And when I think back on it and when I think of what has been said today and things I've heard today, I take stories about meaning, stories about power and exchange. And I guess I, I thought it was going to be more of what I grew up learning what the Bible was supposed to be, which was a book of rules that you have to follow. And now looking back, I'm like, this, there are no rules, quote unquote, that are outlined really in any way that I can see. There are, there are things that we, there are things that God tells people that he wants by his actions, but it's all these kind of indirect messages and just stories that I think are meant for us to take whatever, you know, like many different varieties of meanings from. It feels confusing, but in that confusion, it also feels comforting because I feel like we're not ever supposed to get one answer. It's something that people like ask questions of and investigate and question and wonder about and talk about throughout the millennia, obviously. I think I am a person and many people are, but I'm I'm a person who wants to get an answer and come to a conclusion and say, okay, great, we've talked about it a lot, but what are we going to do? Like, mm -hmm. what do we do with this? <laughs> and maybe what we do is we not do. Like, thinking back, Joy, when you mentioned that the seventh day humans rest just like God, and that's a way for us to be close to God. Maybe it's a journey to being comfortable with not having a concrete answer and learning how to become comfortable with asking questions and just seeing and looking and wondering what does this all mean to us and being comfortable with that. I think that's kind of what I've got from the book of Genesis is we can try to connect and make these patterns and meanings all our lives and people do. And ultimately it's not good. It's not bad. If you do that, it, it, if you do that, it just is. My wife's deep. <laughs> mm. oh, no. No. Oh, I fooled them all. It's not a book about norms. It's not a book about morality. It doesn't, you know, maybe it's training because then there's a torrent of norms, which you're going to start talking about when you talk about Exodus. Mm. Yes. But training. Not in Genesis. Other than the Noahic rules, there is not much. Well, and I loved 
I loved Joy when you were mentioning how there are all these marginal characters that maybe you know usurp or that they usurp or they rise above their original station or they have sort of a rags to riches story, you know, like Joseph. But it's not this easy like this is always good. This person is always good. It is always good when this happens, and that's something that we that is so often missed in popular, you know, sort of easy moralizing from the Bible. And I think that's the point. The point is that it's all contextual. Sometimes this can be good. Sometimes it can be bad. Sometimes it can be neither of those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this, one of the things I take from this, and of course, this is me projecting my own stuff on it, but is the confounding of easy binaries is this is repeatedly it does that. And that's part of, I think, why it will put two different versions of the same story together, you know, because there's not an easy answer. And sometimes you learn something by putting two opposite things together or two things that don't go together together, because there's something that happens in the middle of those things that becomes its own truth. I mean, I did say that I thought when queers eat from the tree of knowledge, they don't just taste good or bad. They taste it's complicated. <laughs> and that, that is how I feel. I feel like this is a book that says it is not good or bad. It is complicated and it depends. Yeah. yeah. And snaps real quick, snaps joy to when you talked about the margin, like everyone is like kind of the marginalizations or people who are marginalized what I heard was like everyone to some degree is is marginalized in a way, but there are some people who are much more than others consistently, continually throughout their lives. I just that resonated with me and I enjoyed it and I wanted to give a shout out to it and give snaps to it. Because I also think that's part of what I got from the overall Genesis wrap up. Awesome. So we're going to uh, wrap up. At, does Joy, would you like, do you have any final words that you'd like to say? I have one thing I wanted to say that David was about to say something. Every time he says something, it's great. So That's I want to true. <laughs> um, I would just give, I'm going to borrow, I'm going to borrow Sue's phrase. I'm going to give snaps to, um, to everything that has just been said. I just really, you know, appreciate that. So Joy, let's, I, I would love to hear what you have to say. Getting, you know, and keeping with our overemphasis of the Eden story, okay. something that I feel like people don't know. There are two trees, right? My dad? So, in keeping okay. with our overemphasis on the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. so there are two trees. Mm -hmm. You know, you would think that might end up becoming a binary, mm. but we all focus on the tree that human beings went for. Mm. And so, we tend not to say, to realize that this is like a, a sort of a tragic joke about humanity, given two trees, one of which is the tree of life, the tree of effing life. <laughs> and there's no prohibition on eating from that tree. Yeah. Yeah. And legit also, to drive that point home, I yeah. completely forgot all about the tree of life until this exact <laughs> moment when you said it again. And I'm like, wow, I am like on a podcast that has talked about like a whole episode about this story <laughs> and this other tree, supposedly other tree that's in it. Definitely. And I completely forgot. So just to drive that home. But, yeah. What tree yeah. of life? What's that? Go on, please. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. So there was no negative consequence from eating of the tree of life. But human beings inexplicably not interested. <laughs> um, gets our attention is this idea of dividing things into binaries into good and bad binaries are extremely sexy oh yeah is extremely sexy mm -hmm. one could also understand the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as you know a level of consciousness where you see that all acts have both kinds of consequences, mm. right? But in any case, you're you start. It's a perspective where you see, where you where judgment enters consciousness, mm -hmm. where it's not just and it's good. Why is it good? God created it. You look around. You're seeing God. You're seeing what God made. Why do we need anything other than good? There hasn't been any category of judgment other than good mm -hmm. until you eat that fruit, and. So it's sort of a joke on human beings, but maybe it is also a reminder to us. And here is, I'm totally projecting my moralizing crap onto this story. But nonetheless, what if we're always in the garden and the two trees are always there and we have a choice of indulging our taste for judgment and moralizing and dividing people and events and experiences into good and bad or we can eat of the tree of life and partake of the life that comprehends all of that. That is wow. the fucking tea, girl. That is, I needed to hear that. That was very beautiful. Thank you. Ugh. Thank you. We've been watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race. So, <laughs> so Sue's <laughs> picked up some of the lingo. You know, it's it's where I'm at right now. I know. I love it. No, it's wonderful. Well, it's I was been... going to say, I was going to like swear, but I'm like, I don't feel comfortable <laughs> like bringing like profanity in after something that I feel profound. <laughs> I really like that. I'll just say super briefly, I'll try to be the I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. We were both preaching that Sunday and, you know, we were sort of talking about the scriptures that we were going to be preaching on. And he was like doing this whole thing where he's trying to like make it work and fit it into this like grand kind of narrative. Right. About, you know, who Jesus was and why this was appropriate and blah, blah, blah. And I was like and I'm following him but I'm like but wait there's this and there's that and I sort of had this like weary kind of feeling and then all of a sudden it hit me and I was like oh we're doing two different projects right like you're doing systematic theology you're trying to like make this work and fit this all together and I'm like I don't care about that like <laughs> I don't presume that I can figure out how this all fits together I certainly don't Zoom to know how I can make this inscrutable God work, right? But what I will do is a narrative theology that focuses on this story and says, what is here? What meaning can I make of this, knowing that tomorrow there may be something different? So I love everything you just said. I love everything Joy said. Joy, thank you so much for joining us. I cannot tell you what a pleasure this was i was gonna say what a joy it was but <laughs> but i cannot tell you what a pleasure this was i really appreciate your time your wisdom everything that you have done and continue to do thank you for joining us thank you so much this was an honor and just a blast 
next season on It's in the Book, the Book of Exodus. Hello, hello, Jay here. Very almost Reverend Jay, actually. Uh, I am getting ordained on February 26th. Hooray! Thank you so much for listening to this, the final episode of It's in the Book Season 2 with special guest Joy Layden. I had a fantastic time recording this episode, and it turns out my son did want to talk a lot. I'm glad that he is as engaged with this material as I am, and I hope that you didn't mind the baby talk and clattering of blocks in the background that much. We are looking at a nice break now that we have completed this second season. I am currently in search, meaning I am looking for a settled congregation somewhere that me and my family can really put down roots and start to build up a community, a physical community, that is. David is about to go into chaplaincy, and I really am feeling the need to refocus my efforts to get Beloved King out onto stages across the country. We have had some wonderful uh, steps forward in the past couple of months, but in order to keep up the momentum, I really need to focus on that with my copious amounts of spare time, backslash sarcasm. I do hope you will follow me. I am on TikTok more than any other social media platform these days. Uh, my name there is Rev J Sylvan, R E V J S Y L V A N. I'm still on Instagram at j.sylvan.themself. You can always join my Patreon, patreon.com slash jsylvan. We do a monthly Bible study there that's a lot of fun, where you can ask me your questions directly and we can kind of wrestle with it together. I really appreciate all the support that this little show has gotten. I look forward to see where it will go in the future. Be well, live well. I'll see you soon. <laughs>